you ever ask yourself that question? Why we do what we do? This isn't playtime! This is serious business! Well, the play must go on, I believe. I'm always home, I'm on cool. I've been thinking a lot about dying lately. I'm trying to do good. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of That's That, a Philip Seymour Hoffman retrospective podcast. My name is Timothy Mark Davis, and I'm your host. Today, we are talking about A Most Wanted Man, the 2014 posthumously released spy thriller directed by Anton Corbin. I hope you took the time to watch the film on Amazon Prime because it is another installment displaying Phil's massive range as an actor. My guests today are filmmaker, One County Film co-founder, and brother, Andrew Paul Davis, and one of our dear friends and fellow Phil enthusiasts who could probably have an internet following but chooses not to, Kinsley Coons-Whitworth. Kinsley, how are you today? I'm doing great, Tim. Thanks for having me. Um, and I will, I will think harder about having an internet following. I appreciate that. Andrew, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I think... Uh, it's a Friday when we're recording this, so that's good. Um, but I'm also a man in a small apartment who hasn't showered yet today. So that's sort of limiting, but I'll shower later and that'll be better. (laughs) It's 421. It's time for a shower. So today we're talking about A Most Wanted Man, which features our man Phil in the leading role of an ensemble film. And here's the log line from IMDb. A Chechen Muslim illegally immigrates to Hamburg, where he gets caught in the international war on terror. Here's the logline from Amazon Prime. Philip Seymour Hoffman stars in this action thriller from spymaster John le Carre. German and U.S. intelligence agencies race to uncover the identity of a mysterious man. So really quick, I want to hear some some votes, assessments, and thoughts on these loglines. Kinsley, we'll start with you. Um, I think that one of the things that was most surprising was the language of like action thriller, which is what I <laughs> used to convince my stepdad to watch it with me. And after the movie was over, he was like, nothing, no, that was not an action movie. And that was really, so looking back at all those log lines or even just like, if you look up the trailers of the film, like yeah. it's just super misleading, I think. So like viewing the movie as like a spy action thriller espionage from the spy master of all spy masters was like pretty shocking because it's it's actually a surprisingly slow paced movie and was mm-hmm. was shocking to to my stepfather to have to watch that film with me. He, yeah, he, he was tricked by you and you were using the marketing collateral to trick him. This is all of life, everyone. Yeah. Using words to trick people to buy your shit. Yeah. Andrew, thoughts? Yes, this is a slice of life ensemble drama <laughs> in which the protagonist is a little bit more exciting than a cop, but a little bit more boring than an actual American spy movie guy. Yeah, no, that's that's spot on. Yeah, that, that really doesn't sell the movie, but it's like <laughs> it's way more about the, it's like the destruction of a man's spirit. But like nobody wants to watch that, right? We want to watch a spy action thriller, right? Um, 
So, so as mentioned, a most wanted man was directed by Anton Corbin, who has directed music videos, predominantly music videos in his career for U2, Arcade Fire, Coldplay, Metallica, Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Brian Adams. I think I saw Janis Joplin in that list, among others. Uh, it's based on the 2008 novel written by John LeCar, John LeCarre. I don't know how to say his name, who you may recognize from other adaptations like Tinker Toller Soldier Spy, which is the worst title of a film I've ever heard or tried to remember. <laughs> uh, also very slow and, and kind of boring movie. <laughs> It makes me want to be like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, Person, Woman, Man, Camera, TV. <laughs> Last night when I was watching A Most Wanted Man with my partner, Sarah, Tinker, Taylor came up as suggested and she was like, what's Tinker, Taylor? And I was like, it's an okay movie with Gary Oldman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the logline for that movie. <laughs> yeah. John Le Carre also wrote. Uh, the novels for The Constant Gardener and The Night Manager. He's been writing, basically this guy was a, he was a spy, like a US CIA spy operative. He's been, and then he started retired and he's been writing spy novels for <laughs> four or five decades. That's great, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. That. It's a pretty cool way to go. Uh, the, the screenplay was adapted by Andrew Bovell, Bovell, I don't know how to say his name, who is an Australian playwright and screenwriter. And I realized he wrote the play When the Rain Stops Falling. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Nice. A little factoid. So that's a really, really beautiful play that if you're if you're a theater person, When the Rain Stops Falling is a great play. A few more things to hit on before we start actually discussing the film, just because I find these facts interesting anyways. It, it premiered at Sundance in 2014. Philip Seymour Hoffman was at that festival premiering this film and another film directed by John Slattery called God's Pocket. Phil's final interviews are recorded at this festival about this film, and he passed away about a week later in New York City. So it's kind of bizarre seeing him speak about this film just a week before uh, his death. So the last bits of info about the film before we dive in, it had a $15 million budget, which means you'd need to make 28 a most wanted mans to surpass the budget of Avengers Endgame. It was a 40 day shoot shot in Hamburg for 38 days and Berlin for two during September and October of 2012, just about six months after I saw uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in Death of a Salesman. And finally, why we're here this is Phil's 52nd feature film, and he plays Gun Gunther, if you're from where we're from, or <laughs> Gunther, if you're from Germany, Gunther Bachmann, a German leader of an anti-terrorist spy organization. As I said, the film premiered at Sundance a week before his death. It was released posthumously in the U.S. on August 1st, 2014. The only other films that were released after this were The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, Parts 1 and 2, which we will discuss on this podcast at some point. So, all, I mean, that was sort of like an information dump, but it's it's sort of like the historical data. Any, any uh, thoughts or responses to any of those factoids? If not, we can jump into the film. I think I have no responses to the factoids, Kinsley. <laughs> I I loved the factoids and that is that is my response to the factoids. <laughs> facts people, we love to see them, but we're not here for facts. We're here for thoughts, feelings, impressions of this film 
and of Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance. So Kinsley, why don't we start with you? Give us like your overall, maybe your own personal history with this film. Cause I've got, it's not weird, but it's sort of like watching it again versus when I first watch it, it feels like another life and another world. So give us your backstory with the film. Why did you want to do this episode? And what are your thoughts on the film? The first time I watched this movie, I realized that I had like forgotten to watch it. Like I, I just, I don't know if I was avoiding watching it because it was like his last movie basically, but I just Mm -hmm. remember being at home. I think I, I really waited a long time. I mean, I think I watched it last year for the first time and was like, it was a moment to be like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to watch this movie, I guess. So, Mm. and then last or two nights ago was the second time I had ever watched it. So, um, I feel like watching it the, the second time, maybe it was the context of like doing more research beforehand and like having it marketed as, because when you're going into a movie, knowing it's a Philip Seymour Hoffman movie, Like that was how I felt watching it the first time was like, oh, I'm watching a movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman. This time sort of making myself watch the trailers, read the log lines, things like that. I was like, oh, like expecting something different the second time because of the log lines or because of the advertising, even though I was like, I had convinced myself that I remembered the movie incorrectly. Um, (laughs) But I think being more focused this time, all of the notes that I took watching it the second time are so granular because I don't know if I have sort of a big opinion of this movie. I think Mm. I liked this movie. I think I have, um, I was obsessed with like the granular details of Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in this movie. And also like moments where I absolutely laughed out loud, which I don't (laughs) know if what the movie that's what the movie wanted from me, which I'm sure we'll get into later. Yeah. But I feel like that's why I want to like, if I talk too much longer, I'm just going to talk about these like minuscule details. And my only other like grand feeling from the movie is I wish that Rachel McAdams was cast. Her character was the, what's the name of the actress from Phantom Thread? That's like this very small Vicky part. Creeps. Nikki, Vicky Creeps, yeah. Yeah, I Nikki. definitely wish their roles were switched. Oh my God, yes. Rachel McAdams, to me, in this movie was like a version of the log line. Like also Rachel <laughs> McAdams is in it. And this is me saying, I absolutely love Rachel McAdams. It felt completely random to me that she is in this film yeah. and that she was kind of around. And I was like, also, I will make this note early on. I had just watched the Eurovision movie with Will Ferrell. And the accent that she uses in the Will Ferrell comedy is the exact same accent she uses in A Most Wanted Man, which really (laughs) had me reeling. Which is not a real accent. It's just an American doing a really bad German accent. I saw the worst piece of IMDb trivia last night. (laughs) after watching the movie and it was basically just said to prepare for her role in a most wanted man rachel mcadams learned how to use a german accent (gasps) oh no that also in my mind was blown someone wrote that ironically that's what that was some imdb troller jumped in and wrote that because her accent work and and i didn't even think about switching those roles that is brilliant that is brilliant what were you saying kinsley I was just saying, I think that that the reason I wanted to talk about this film is because 
like, if anything, talking about the last one minute of the movie and <sighs> how it is very ominous uh, to the reality of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And um, I also, yeah, I'm super excited to talk about the very teeny tiny decisions that he he makes in the movie and how funny it is to watch him run after someone in this movie. So oh, yeah. that, that's that. Uh, uh, nice. Nice. I like that. So, I mean, I, I, let me just, first of all, validate the like laughing out loud. I'm there with you. There was five or six moments where I, I just burst out laughing. It was, it was perfect. But a- Andrew, give us your, give us your overall, your overall feelings, thoughts, impressions. I feel like with a lot of the movies you're probably going to be talking about on this podcast, it feels almost too easy to compartmentalize like Phil's performance and then the movie as a whole. So it almost mm. becomes confusing to like give analysis to like the movie in general, because, you know, even if this podcast was not the backdrop of like why these movies are being watched by the different people watching them right now, that's still just like, the focus of what's going on. And I think for us to like sympathize with Gunther, um, Gunther, I shouldn't like, it's not funny, but I don't know. It's just that name. It's not like German anything. I mean, you have to decide early on in this podcast, how you're going to keep saying the name. Are you going to stick with that? Are you going to stick with Gunther? (laughs) I feel like we have to go Gunther. (laughs) All right. I mean, if we're all in it together. Okay. That's good. I'll go full Gunther. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Carry on, Andrew. If he's up against Robin Wright in this movie, essentially, and these other like normie spies, like (laughs) you can't have Tom Cruise or someone also normie make be, you know, this like alt spy. Yes. Like, oh my God. Yeah. He he is alt spy, and mm-hmm. that's why we like him a little bit. At least is just because he's not full on Robin Wright American cop. Yeah. Right. Which uh, is why the running scene is so amazing. Yes. <laughs> because I mean, I'm not. I promise this will be the last time I bring it up. But like, literally, the note that I took in my phone watching him like completely like lose breath and like bumble <laughs> chasing in the chase scene was like. I literally wrote not Jason Bourne in my phone (laughs) and how amazing it was to watch like a spy, like run after someone during this like intense scene and like literally have him not be able to do it. And I thought that was really special and is what is why Philip Seymour Hoffman is so special is because, and why watching him be a spy was amazing because it really wasn't what you were saying, Andrew, like fast, sleek, situation where mm-hmm. he's like hopping over a car although i wish he would have tried to oh, really God. extend that scene i was so nervous like please don't trip and or have a heart attack while <laughs> just like yeah call someone else yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean that's the other sort of interesting parallel when you think about when this movie was was made the time in his life and then kind of how this character is. I mean, smoking all the time, drinking all the time, putting putting whiskey from a flask in his coffee. Side note, I would like to get to a level where I can just walk into any diner and just say, coffee, black. And it just appears. Just anyone looking at you. <laughs> yes. he, he looks so gross and sick and pale 
and fat and he's just like oh it is it is not good and it's like weirdly parallels what was happening in his own life as depression and addiction were creeping back in and taking over and also this character is just sort of slowly marching to his destruction (laughs) i guess yeah yeah that's sort of where I was heading was like, not only is the film overshadowed by like his, you know, as he does often is just like giving a little bit better of a performance than what maybe the film story offers. Um, yeah. But it's also overshadowed by just like it being one of his last roles. And like, even the last scene has like a different meaning too, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in light oh, yeah. of like the, the factoids, as you would say, yeah. uh, that historical info. But um, in addition to like the, yeah, his like face, his paleness, his health, both character yeah. and actor, like contributes a lot to the whole mood of the film, I yeah. think. And um, I think generally i think it's one of like the best okay movies ever (laughs) is like how i would describe it (laughs) like it's like really gets up into that higher echelon of like this is a great okay movie that's that's interesting that you say that because i enjoyed it more this time than i did the first time watching it Mm -hmm. and uh, when you were talking i was what's that like i'm gonna go way out of my depth here but that physics principle of you know once you observe a thing the thing changes or whatever Sure yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. Someone write in and comment and say what this is actually called. But it's but it's that idea that uh, these an object is a is in a certain state until it's observed, and then once it's observed, the state of the object changes. I think this film, it's like it's impossible to look at this film without the you know pairing it next to. Philip Seymour Hoffman's death. It was really weird to me that I sort of didn't remember how I felt about the movie the first time I watched it. I think to Andrew's point, it was strange after watching it this time. It was so fun to like obsessively watch Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, which I don't think I always do when I'm watching movies, but also definitely didn't do the first time watching this movie. And this time at the end being like, man, incredible performance. But that's also what I was watching the whole time. And the sort of, I watched it with, as you heard, my stepdad and my brother talking about it afterwards. I was sort of like, do I, did I think that was a good movie? Or did I think like it was an an incredible performance? And when you look at a lot of the reviews, like the, I think it was the New York Times review that was like, the whole entire review is just about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like I literally don't think that they <laughs> mentioned Rachel McAdams a second time besides just saying yeah. she's in the movie. And it was really strange to ask myself if I, what kind of pressure I felt to like the movie because it's his last one. Yeah. Um, but also how much it was really about his performance and not the movie, because I actually think the movie is pretty okay. And it was, I mean, all jokes aside, it was really fun to watch it through my stepdad's eyes, who was just like, what just happened? <laughs> and then was like sort of over it pretty quickly. Just was like, yeah. that's not the movie you said it was going to be. Yeah. And for me to be like, yeah, it is sort of this like 
pretty slow moving performance mm-hmm. that or movie that is this incredible performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman that I think I load because it's his last one that I almost yeah. am like looking for. I don't know. <laughs> like looking I, for it to be better yeah. than it is. Yeah. And, and that's yeah. where I'm like, this is where I'm almost the, you know, hosting the podcast. It's like, will I, will I ever think a movie he's in is bad? You know, it's like, I, and I think that's what I was getting at is I can't separate my own love for this actor. You know, when I look at a movie that he's in my, the observation of it changes because he's in it. Yeah, totally. And, and so I, I think I probably, <laughs> it sounds like I probably enjoyed it more than both of you. But the the thing I will say is that like, Rachel McAdams, not very good. I was also let down by Willem Dafoe. Like, and maybe that was just the the character, but he didn't, to me, he didn't bring anything particularly interesting to the role. You know who I did love though, was uh, Grigory Dobrigin, who, (laughs) I don't know if that's how you say his name, but the guy who played Issa. Yeah. mm -hmm. I thought he was really good. I, I liked his performance. Everyone else, I was like, eh, yeah. I don't know. Willem Dafoe, I think, was just miscast, just like Rachel McAdams. Like, it felt yeah. like this weird... Yeah, but, I mean, Willem Dafoe, I always just, like, there just wasn't enough. I just always want more. Yeah. Willem Dafoe in every movie. Yeah, he, like, can't... He, he should never be, like, a normal dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's like Florida Project motel manager is, like, the most normal dude that he will ever nail. Yeah. Otherwise, he's got to be the Green Goblin or some version of it. <laughs> In Spider-Man, come out to play. Let's go back, Kinsley. Talk about some of these granular moments. And why don't we start with each of our, and maybe it'll be the same thing. I've got a few, but what were your, uh, where you laughed the hardest or those little moments? Just pick one for now that, that made you laugh. We talked about the running already. So besides that. Yes, besides the amazing running, the first time he meets um, Claire... In House of Cards. I'm sorry. Robin, Robin Wright. Wright. Yes, Martha, Robin Wright. Martha Sullivan is the character. Martha Sullivan. When he meets her for the first time and does this like perfect balance of... Because obviously what's most amazing about this whole performance is the fact that he like barely moves his face the entire movie. Like does not straighten his back a single time except at the very end when he's like happy for 30 seconds. Um, but he, he barely... He never straightens up. He never opens his mouth all the way. His forehead almost never moves. I mean, it's just like incredible, incredible. And there's this moment that I, I don't know why I laugh, but he's meeting her for the first time and he has his, I'm so sorry about the names, but the other woman that he is mainly with that he does the like weird fake make out with, with his eyes open, which was also an amazing moment where I laughed. Irna Frey played by Nina Haas. Irna. Very, yeah. very much. So he's introducing Irna and does this perfect balance of like awkward and douchey. Like, I don't want to yes. be here. I don't want to know you. He does this like kind of misogynist move where he grabs Irna's arm and sort of is like, oh, here's here's my coworker. Like, I can't remember the dialogue for the life of me, but it's just this really uncomfortable moment that that made me laugh so hard because <laughs> it was this really... I was like, oh, this guy is like a douchebag and like really overconfident. But also in this moment, I'm seeing this like genuine awkwardness from him that he's overcompensating by like 
you know, grabbing Irna's arm and mm-hmm. like also not like literally not, he never turns his shoulders to Robin. Yeah. Like for a second. Yeah, second. And I don't, do you guys that, remember that moment? Do you know what moment I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. It's the, it's the scene that ends with him being like, I've been observed by Americans before. Usually it doesn't end well. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean. That the he he, it's that thing, and we talked about it on the on the master episode where he like is balancing two things at the same time within a couple lines. Like somehow he is doing that thing that we do in real life, where we can unconsciously switch from oh, this is the tone of the social interaction. Oh, okay, I need I need to to alter it slightly so that. I salvage this or so that I can dig in a little bit more. Yeah. I totally know what you're saying. It's, yes. it's beautiful. And I think you, you reminding me of that line actually reminds me of another like note that I took, which was like how strange it was to hear Philip Seymour Hoffman deliver such like canned lines, which it <laughs> felt like in this movie that some of the lines were like, if they were coming out of any other actor's mouth, I would have been like, Oh my God. Like, (laughs) which I don't, I guess that's a critique of the film, but like, I, I kind of loved it because it was kind of hilarious that like Philip Seymour Hoffman was like, yeah, I've done all this before. (laughs) I'm just like, what is your, does that make sense? Yeah. It's the same thing as when he meets that, what, what's his, butt the, the guy from the other German agency and it's like, if it would have been in your hands, you would have fucked it up. Yeah, yeah. Clown. S- Call him a clown, clown at the end of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So funny. I had a realization about line readings and him also while watching it, but it was very specific. Um, and it's that, what if Philip Seymour Hoffman would have played Anakin Skywalker in episode two and three? <laughs> <laughs> and like, him and Ewan McGregor could have like conquered all the dialogue together, <laughs> and oh, Mustafar would have been like, me. "You're awesome. my enemy." Yeah. yeah, he would have killed that movie. That would have been awesome if he <laughs> would have was. Been awesome. Yeah, it, he would have been the right age, two thousand two, two thousand five, or yeah, whenever they filmed those in nineteen eighty. Or Honestly, thirties, incredible for so many reasons, like line <laughs> delivery, physical presence. <laughs> Yeah, um, so yeah. that would have been awesome. You will not take it from me! One thing that I'm thinking about too, going back to like the value of the movie just apart from him, <laughs> you know, like yeah, uh, just that like foreign perspective because one of the funny moments for me is when he's like, ooh, ooh American. Oh my gosh. That oh, was yes. like a very funny moment for me. Oh, and I yeah. died. I think it's just refreshing to have like German protagonists <laughs> and like, how how lame would this movie have been if it was like Virginia and we're gonna oh, spy Langley. Oh. and we're near the CIA headquarters and we're gonna spy on Muslims? Right. <laughs> like it, it definitely feels like a novel. I think that's part of the mm. weakness of the movie is that like there's all these like li- there's some of these like little characters who you know in the book like his you know co-workers in the spy agency are probably yeah. more developed there thank christ it's not in yours because if it was you'd fuck it up mm-hmm. then i wanted in writing your signature on the letter because when a bomb goes off in hamburg i want you there to see the blood on the streets. have you ever seen blood on the streets clown i think the setting the setting being in in germany and this sort of, it's an international affair and the Germans can't get along, 
you know, it's sort of like the CIA and FBI over here. They're always, they're, they're never working together. They're working against each other. It's all about who's going to get the credit for it. Who's going to, who's going to get to save the day. And it's like, no wonder these agencies are just steeped in bullshit and are, you know, if you're the CIA torturing, torturing people in Guantanamo and covering it up. And this brings that like, okay, we've got the interdepartmental fight going on in Germany, but then we also have big bad Americans coming in and doing their policing of the world thing and just getting to decide we're going to take this over, which, you know, the, the climax of the film is Gunther Bachmann is working so hard to create this scaffolding of a spy network. And I'm, I'm going to have, you know, I've got Abdullah's son on my side and I'm going to use this, this Chechen Muslim who's come over to prove that Abdullah is, is donating to the seven friends cargo thing. And that, and then we're going to be able to get Abdullah and flip him because Abdullah's not the bad guy. He's just in the ladder of bad guys. You know, he's, he's got the like long-term I'm, I'm a real spy, you know? And that's the thing that I liked about the whole crew, you know, Vicky creeps, Daniel Brule, um, Nina Haas, his, his whole little spy network. It's like, we never got their names. We don't know what that organization is called. It's here's our shitty office with, with post-its and pictures all over the wall. It's, it's like you said, Andrew, like, like an alt spy group, which I think is the perfect description, but actual spies, like espionage is what they do. They're not trying to kill people and, and terrorize people. And it, it, it just seemed at least to me that the motives of that group were cleaner than the Americans coming in and the existing German spy version Heavy-handed. of the CIA. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that to me, like playing the, the international politics of that and the, and the foreign policy part of that and how, citizens are spied on and immigration and racial profiling. Like I I liked how all of that was in there. And to me, the thematically it's still relevant for today. I can understand why you don't trust us. Your agents and contacts were compromised. Men who trusted you died. And that stays with you always. And all that damage we leave behind. All those lives, all those empty rooms, what would they have been for? You ever ask yourself that question? Why we do what we do? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. But I always come back to the same answer. And what is it? Make the world a safer place. Isn't that enough? So I feel like there's at least some reflection on what that alt spy group is doing. And also, Robin Wright in this movie, it just feels like House of Cards character. (laughs) That's the last thing (laughs) I'll say. Yeah. I think something that is good about this movie even though it doesn't like hopefully just puts me on a path of thinking more critically it is just like reckoning with the fact that i have not a very good mental framework of like 
thinking about the war on terror, you know, it's oh, like yeah. being seven years old when nine 11 happens and then coming of age when this novel came out, <laughs> you know, like in the late two thousands and then this movie's released in 2014 and then we're revisiting it in 2020 when we have this like more increased distrust of like the surveillance state, you know, which these people are a part of, but it's obviously different than American policing, you know, as opposed to this like underground spy unit. So there's like all these different like competing social and internationally political aims that are like, you know, it's like you sort of, I guess like being a part of the generation that I'm a part of and that you both are a part of, it's like being very young during 9-11. It's sort of like you come up with the counter of like, oh, well, I'm not going to be distrustful. Like I see older people being during this time, you know, during the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, like I want to be the opposite or does that make sense? I'm not really like. Yeah, I mean, I think. I think generationally there there's this aspect of when, when nine 11 happened, I think, and I don't, I don't want to, I'm not going to speak for you, Kinsley, but I, I assume that we were, we were all in sort of a similar subculture that was like bad guys. Yes. Let's go to war, kill the bad people. And that was just like, okay. And normal and didn't think twice about it as a middle schooler, high schooler, and really not even until I got into college and those things were being questioned and talked about in a more engaging and, and thoughtful way. So, so it's like, yeah, I, I feel like I similarly have major gaps when it comes to under, even understanding how the CIA and the FBI and international intelligence agencies work and play. And, and part of that is probably intentional. You know, they don't want us to know what they're doing. But I think that's part of why I like this film is that it exposes some of that and it offers that non-American point of view. Mm-hmm. You know, Anton Corbin being uh, I think he's a Dutch filmmaker and and John Le Carre being British. You know, this to me this film is a critique on the American bully in in foreign policy and in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really using 9/11 as an excuse to do whatever they want for a decade plus. Right. Even just in a basic way of expanding, you know, the imagination that I was given, which was very similar to what you described, which is like a bad thing has happened to us. And Mm. aren't we beautiful for being together? Like we're so unified. So look Mm. at all, look at all this stuff about us being unified, but actually, you know, and one of the things that makes us unified is deciding to, start a war or go to war. And I mean, like a film about how, what a big role Hamburg in general played in like post nine 11 security. Like it is something that, you know, I thought it was very much in, in a very naive way, just like very much like, you know, the U S versus the middle East in a pretty simple way. And, and I think even just making a film that's like, like you said, based in the more like subtle and like after effects and how, yeah, America can still state claim over what had happened to them. And so what they need to do to, to insert themselves into the situation so that they can feel like they're the ones that are 
still seeking this kind of extreme retribution, even in these sort of smaller moments, which is, right. I think, what a most wanted man kind of shows us. Yeah, want control and want to enact retributive justice or just pure retribution rather than, you know, I think the conversation culturally we're having now about restorative justice is like, oh, where was this 10, 15 years ago when some shady shit was going on in the world and we were okay with it, Yeah, many of us. Which it makes sense why that scene where he's like, what are we doing? And her answer of being like, we're just making the world a safer place. Like it's, yeah. it's so perfect because her saying that feels so gross. Um, yeah, it does. Am I, <laughs> am, am I wrong in thinking that it's right after this that he stands up and punches that guy in the bar? Oh, gosh. that's my other funny moment. This is the best you could do. Hide in the cave, Twyla. I'll leave the rooms with a view to you. <laughs> I leave the rooms with a view to you. Such an insane line. Like, honestly, (laughs) unbuttoned at this point. Like, which also an incredible point that the movie literally opens with him with like an unbuttoned shirt that like, I know his name is like Gunther before anyone even calls him that, you know, like it's a vibe that he really carries. Um, But yes, the bar. Yeah. So they're, they're in the cave dweller bar and, and (laughs) in, in the background, it's just like a old long-haired guy who like smacks a woman and he just goes oh no stands up walks across the room punches the guy in the face this does not change his his face does not move no doesn't think about it it's like it's like normal it's like oh this is i this is why i'm here (laughs) and then like does the little dance (laughs) yes and what does she say she's like were you trying to impress me uh, yes yeah oh man that was that tickled me. Those were the three <laughs> cave dweller, ooh, Americans, and punches the guy in the face. Those were the funny moments I had written down. Yeah. Jesus Christ, why don't you have some fun? Fun, fun. <laughs> so the other thing that I want to think about for this particular film, and, and we touched on it already, where there's this sort of parallel, this character in this film is trying so hard to do something the way that he thinks it should be done, trying to do it the right way. And he's got some backstory in Berlin where things went really bad and he got kicked out of Berlin and now he's in Hamburg. Um, And he's just kind of like, seems to be characterized by failure. And he's got this singular vision for what he wants to accomplish. And as I was looking up interviews of Sundance interviews, this one clip came up. There's something about there's something about that story that that spoke to me about where I am now in my life. I think I mean, that's the best way to put it. I don't think it's something put into words, or but I think I read it and I saw myself in it somehow. Right. You know about being in the middle of your life. You know, it's as much a story about that than it, all the other things it's about. It's about a man really confronting with what he's passionately been pursuing. And uh, and what that's done to him. There's something about that I think uh, people can relate to. And some, even though his life is quite an extreme existence, uh, it's very relatable, and I really moved me. So I thought it was fascinating that the thing that Phil connected to in this film was being in the middle of my life and confronting what I've passionately been pursuing, and what that's done to him. And that for me was like, oh my gosh, this. Like the plane of his career is landing here and we're, and we're sort of witnessing in a character 
what also is happening in his life personally and this idea that artists you know the tortured artist the artist who has to experience great pain in order to create something beautiful i think i think that's a myth but i also see it play out in so many people's lives and i think we see it we we see it play out in phil's life as well but i wanted to hear from from both of you as people who have created create will continue to create what do you think of i mean and you can you can relate it to phil as well of just like even the phrase tortured artist i hate it but like the pain that it can take to create something what's your personal experience with that and and what are sort of your more philosophical ideas about that concept i think to to at least frame that i i also thought the the clip from that interview is so interesting because it made me think of i was rereading some reviews like i've mentioned of the movie um and i think it was the washington post review that sort of parallels this you know the life of philip seymour hoffman and like the work of gunther um Mm. and talking about how they're both sort of extremely carefully, which goes, goes really well with the pace of the film, which is like really zero to hero kind of at the end in regards to at least like pace and action. Um, This like careful building of a thing that this external force comes in and like fucks up at the very end and how Mm. it feels like, you know, uh, sort of like laying these careful bricks, like, like the character, like Gunther is doing to, to have this, you know, perfect ending and that the paralleling that I think a little bit, maybe too in a too far fetched way, but in a helpful way that made this clip make a lot more sense was paralleling that to Philip Seymour Hoffman's career of these really careful and thought out performances and it, and it makes me then curious what the thing is that that fucks it all up for him in a moment or what what mm. can take that from him because obviously in the movie we see a very carefully and perfectly executed plan that is then taken it it makes me curious what what was that for Philip Seymour Hoffman and yeah i think i think what you said i think the whole tortured artist thing is a myth i think as i've thought about it or dealt with it I wonder if it's been a trope for so long that it actually I was really over analytical of it like because I feel like I interacted with people who got the tortured part down first before creating (laughs) or caring about any art just because it was already such a shtick and I I say this not as a critique of other people because I think I count myself in in this confusion that is maybe in our generation more of being like reading Jack Kerouac and wanting to be Jack Kerouac instead of like reading a book and really thinking hard about a book and the persona around an artist. And I think I've thought a lot about how much should we know about the personal life of an artist more and more. Mm. I find myself attracted to artists that I know nothing about um, in Mm. some ways, because I think that, Um, And I think this is something that at least, I don't know, 
I feel like I have a memory of talking about it with Tim a little bit, but I have kind of an obsessive personality. And I, once I start to love something, I want to know everything about it. Um, Hmm. And I think that does take the form sometimes with like celebrity culture. Like I like, I feel like I find myself trying to obsessively find information about the things, people or artists that I love. And I think the more that I've been frustrated by this sort of starving artist or tortured soul thing, the more that it seems way more about the personality than the art that I find I'm way more attracted to artists that I kind of don't know about and maybe are tortured (laughs) to a certain extent, but like, yeah, I think, I think the conversation about mental health is really interesting and our mental health tied to creativity. And I think that's a conversation I'm worth having. Like that's really worth having. I think that I really struggle with the, the personality because I mean, I'm sure you guys have interacted with the people that have chosen the personality before they've cared about any art actually. And (laughs) I think that running into that has made me, first of all, unable to have the interesting and helpful conversation about like how our mental health is tied to creativity. But that to Mm -hmm. me, what's interesting about that conversation is the closeness of like beauty and terror, which I think is something we all are interested in, that that, that the more we are in touch with the terror of the world, the more we're willing to see the absolute and utter darkness, the more sensitive and aware and desperate we are for the beauty of the world beautiful art that's being created without any recognition of the absolute terror just isn't real it's not beautiful and that to me someone who's so so deeply you know entrenched in their art I think that that makes total sense because of what art is because of what beauty is that to be overwhelmingly passionate about your art form means that you're probably constantly and overwhelmingly in touch with the terror of the world and there's almost nothing more overwhelming that I can think of which if you really let yourself think about it it the world is a very terrible place and but you know then it's all the circle again of the terror is what makes beauty beauty So, so I think there's part of the conversation that's really interesting and part of it that's not, which is less about a caricature and more about like, of course, of course there's a torture in having both of those things so beautifully. And I'm interested in how we can stop the terror completely overwhelming the beauty, um, knowing that they have to live alongside each other. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that could be put better that was really poignant Kinsley (laughs) something that I really got from this movie that like redeemed the less tasty more bitter like spy shenanigans was the human angle of it which was like all of these people even though they have this altruistic slogan of like making the world a safer place they're ultimately they want to be the best at their job (laughs) you know um, that's kind of what I walk away from feeling about all of them is like, they all just want to be the best spy in Hamburg kind of. Mm-hmm. And I think what sometimes drives 
creative folk to terror is like desire really <laughs> that's unattainable um uh, i think what phil wanted was to be a great actor that was one of that was one of the things that he yeah. wanted and that can never be felt or attained by the beholder or the person in pursuing it it's only really offered posthumously by everyone else <laughs> you know yeah. um it's like you can win an oscar in 2006 but you're still agonizing over creating a character every single time you do it yeah yeah so it's you sort of play with this this beauty this fire of creativity which is inherently godlike <laughs> um mm. creating something out of nothing you know something that scientists know is impossible but artists have a a method <laughs> to do um yeah. so i think in that desire to be great <laughs> in the most like perfect sense is what sometimes drives people to deep dissatisfaction with their work and what they're doing and um alongside some satisfaction yeah all of the like speculating about you know like there, there's things we know about phil's personal life there's a lot we can know about his performances without knowing what it was like to be him during all those takes etc but um like i sometimes wonder if uh I don't know anything about his kids or how old they are now, but if years from now, you know, they'll resent or one of them will resent and the other won't, or I can't remember if he has two or three kids, but there's three, um, you know, how will they feel about his acting legacy? Will they resent the deification <laughs> or right. will they mm. love that? Um, Ethan Hawke did an interview where he talked about, He's talking about Robin Williams, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and later in the interview, he talks about River Phoenix as well, and sort of the encapsulates, at least from his perspective, some of the things we're talking about, and I want to play that really quick. Two of the great talents of my life, two of the biggest influences on me, Robin Williams and, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, both passed away last year, right? I mean, these are very, very serious artists, and um, they're not celebrities to me you know philip was the first one of my generation to be a fully actualized actor artist you know he he had something to say with his work with his theater company with the choices he made with the way he carried himself in the world you know he was a very serious person robin too depression is a real demon in the woods too of a lot of creative people you know and um it's it's part of what the documentary is trying to be about for me is finding balance, you know, where the beauty that is attainable in the creative arts can be matched with the scratchy roughness of regular life. Regular life sometimes doesn't have the grace that you can have when you're acting, you know, or if you ever watched, which we all have, Robin on a comic jag. When it's flowing through him, tell you something, after that scene, you know, you go to the craft service table, you get a cup of coffee, you're sitting there, and Robin Williams is sitting by himself, totally depleted. 
I mean, it didn't come for free. You know, I, I worked with Philip Seymour Hoffman. It didn't come for free. I saw him in um, Death of a Salesman. You know, it didn't come for free. As I was watching that that clip and watching this film and seeing again this this character who's descending into a painful place, you know, where he he really everything that he's striving for he loses at the end. Uh, it, it reminded me of, you know, this idea of it, it doesn't come for free. Like that's the thing that it was ringing in my ears. And I think we've been getting at that in some way. And, and Kinsley, I think you said it so beautifully talking about when we're making something, you know, we, we're brushing up against that terror, against the, the messiness and the darkness of life. It made me think about, I, I did a play last year. Uh, it's called Falling. And so I think I, I always prided myself on being one of these actors who can, you know, like wipe your feet at the door. That was the common phrase. Like, don't bring your bullshit from your life into the rehearsal room. And when you leave the rehearsal room, don't bring the character into your, into your life. And, you know, I think even generationally growing up as an actor in the, in the fifties, in the seventies, in the nineties today, like we've developed a much more sensitive and robust and in a lot of ways, effective paradigm and, and consciousness around mental health. And so the thing I realized when I was doing this play, which was pretty physically demanding and, you know, just expressing a lot of emotion and a lot of fear and anger and on stage, I would... <laughs> I would finish the show and, and almost every night for the whole run of the show, you know, I'd do the talk back and talk to people after, and it was a really great experience. And then I would go to Wendy's at 12 midnight, one in the morning and get like a Baconator and fries. <laughs> yeah. Delicious. As like a form. Yeah. And I didn't, I learned this. I, I took a workshop about, I took an intimacy uh, workshop. It's like, how do we handle intimate moments on, on stage? A friend of mine, Nicole Perry, is an intimacy director down here in, in South Florida. And one of the points of that is, is closure. It's like when we, when we finish a rehearsal, when we finish a performance, you know, closure for so many actors is, hey, let's go out to the bar and, and get hammered. And, you know, then we'll sleep in all day and wake up and tomorrow night we'll do a show again. That sounds um, so nice. Or, or let's go to Steak and Shake. Yes, exactly, exactly. If you if you go to you know if you're in the Midwest in the Christian College circuit, it's a it's a patty melt and a chocolate milkshake, which is probably worse than you know gin and tonic. But um, but we won't get into that here. Oh, we will not get into that. (laughs) But just realizing that, oh my gosh, I've been using. Like I thought that I, that I was like developed enough as an artist to be able to do the work and leave it in the theater. But like, I subsequently recognized that I was using a meal to like emotionally detox from everything that I had to put my body through for that 80 minutes. And how do you think the Baconator feels about that, Tim? (laughs) Being used. (laughs) Now that is the questions we finally need to start asking. How did the Baconator feel? <laughs> like, where's the closure from that? You know? <laughs> the point being is, 
artists need tools to separate themselves from their art making because it is, you are brushing up against things. You are sometimes inhabiting things. You are thinking about and meditating on and creating things that represent the truth and reality of the world, which is deep and terrible. Um, and that's something that I had to learn and something that I, that I, I think about Philip Seymour Hoffman and, you know, it didn't come for free. And it's like, when we're talking about mental health, when we talk about caring for actors who are a part of a production, that's something that as a, as a theater company, how do we provide avenues for our actors to be taken care of at a emotional level, at a spiritual level? Uh, I think that conversation should expand and should be larger because yeah, a lot of artists can be sad and have mental health issues and I think we need better tools to address it and care for people. I agree. And I like everything you said. And I have one idea <laughs> is that I think every theater should just have like a steam room. And if people want to do yoga or whatever, after the performance, yeah, more real estate, that's exactly what we need. We, we need smaller dressing rooms. <laughs> like definitely. It's like we have leftover money. So what can we do with that? Yes. Exactly. Um, I think it does. We don't have to totally get into this because I know we are, have been talking for a long time, but it does make me curious. Like, I feel like acting is such an intricate art form and so much more intricate than a lot of people, I think, think that it might be. Yeah. But I do think the sort of like ending of a show, ending of a play, and then choosing that thing to to separate because the ending of the play is not necessarily the the separation, but there are right. sort of these distinct moments that you can can choose to to detach. And I am wondering what those moments feel like for other artists with less obvious, less external moments of departure or moments of separation. Like I think about musicians or writers that maybe aren't writing fiction like I wonder how similar those moments feel or how inescapable some art can feel versus others um or or when acting can feel inescapable what's going on because I do think one of the things about being an actor is having these like external moments of of end of of complete yeah, closure of closure yeah. and I am wondering where those moments are for other, other artists. Um, if they're less obvious, how do you find them? And like, is that a practice of like mental health, you know, care that you can find those, those moments as an artist of like, what are these, mm -hmm. these moments of, of separation that I can find or look for or create when they're not as obvious as a literal room full of people clapping for you. <laughs> um, well, and I think that's part of the deception of acting is, to me, it's th th that experience is almost like a false closure. Yeah. You know, just because yeah. the play ends and people are clapping, it doesn't mean you're not still carrying all of the tension and all of the kind of shit that you've put yourself through. It's like, and, and so I think that practice could look similar for anyone. Yeah. And, and it could even be just 30 seconds of like breathing and yeah. acknowledging that I just did something painful. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm acknowledging that. Absolutely. Like, now I'm going to go make some rice and beans. 
I'm going to go slam a Baconator. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Love like it. maybe if I was in a better frame of mind when eating the Baconator, the Baconator would have felt better about it, right? Honestly. <laughs> All of these uh, little conversations I think we've had in the last like half hour or so between like that beauty and terror and that like need for like ritual and ceremony. I think there's just something inescapably spiritual <laughs> about yeah. creativity and art. And I often put it into its own corner, like outside of exercise or social or spiritual or, but like art is unique and fun and like deep because it often brings together all of those other things we like about life, learning, you know, like yeah. leisure, like it's fun. It's, uh, it carries this like web and intersection of like a lot of other areas of life, especially as actors literally portraying life and, mm, and right. moments. It's not easy. But there's no going back. For any of us. We can't undo what's done. So the last thing I want to touch on is is just the ending of the film. If someone listens to the podcast and they haven't watched the movie, it's like, why are you doing that? I, although there is some things not related to the movie, but the whole podcast is spoilers, everyone. So watch watch the movies or be someone who has seen the movies before listening or shout out to all the davis super fans who just really are here for you guys and my mom probably who will end up listening yeah i was thinking about that it's like this is a podcast that i can already tell my friends and family will not listen to the people who are going to listen to this are the ones who follow the hashtag Philip Seymour hoffman hashtag on instagram and i'm trolling them in their comments and saying guys Shout out to you guys. For being if here. I don't know you and you're here, like DM me <laughs> at Timothy Mark Davis. Let's become friends because most people in my actual life do not care about this anywhere near <laughs> as much as I do. And all the ones that do are here on the podcast with you. <laughs> and even Andrew is like, I don't care that much. Yeah. Yeah, like, but Kinsley, I know you have always been a big fan. So that's why you're here. Of both Davises and PSH. <laughs> I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, but then whenever I'm with Tim, I'm just like, <laughs> it just dwarfs. Yeah. Well, someone in the room's got to be like, I mean, yeah, it's true. that great. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do not. Just kidding, Tim. I just wanted you to do that. It's that noise that you just made has been, I knew I wanted to hear it at one single point in this podcast. And I knew I'd hear, hear it one time. So. Okay. Well, there you go. You got it. Okay. So the end of this film, basically Gunther Bachmann has been trying this whole time. I, that was good though. I yeah. just plowed right through that without even thinking. So Gunther Bachmann is, is scaffolding this entire spy plan to get people on his side. He's got it perfectly. Everything is working out. And then the fucking Americans and the other German spy people come in, they crash into his car. They steal his, his newly, his new assets that he's got. And they completely obliterate his plan. They've had an ulterior plan all along to ruin his life. And then this. Fuck! 
And I'd actually encourage everyone, this scene is on YouTube. You should just go like last scene of a most wanted man. Just watch it. He walks off. I'm not even going to describe it. I'll put it in the show notes. You need to watch this last scene. But Kinsey, the thing that you kept mentioning about his his mouth never moving, and it's just such a reserved performance, which is one of the reasons I love it, because he's got this massive range of character characters. You know, we watched the yearling in last week's episode where he's this crazy Southern accent and over the top. And then he can do the other opposite of... So, so much restraint, so much control, but still so compelling until this explosion at the end that to me, it's like one of my favorite film endings ever, honestly. And I know you all, you know, whatever. I like the movie more than you. It, I no, I agree. I mean, it's it up there. Such a good ending to a film. Also, yeah. the moment right before this is arguably like the most emotion he had shown. There's this moment where he's in the van. It's right when the dude is like, I would like to make a substitute, you know, like right when he knows that he like, Oh, the tension in that when they're just signing papers, the tension was crazy. The tension. But then it's the first time arguably that Philip Seymour Hoffman moves his face and he literally smirks like a little kid. It's this incredible moment where he looks like he has this side eye flirty smirk to no one. And in the van, and he's wearing this incredible, like, dare I say it, Twister-esque flannel vest <laughs> oh, moment. Yes, totally. He has this amazing outfit on, and he's, like, so, so fucking psyched. Like, he had yeah. the, and the fact that, like, that was this incredible moment, which, if you look back on it, is just this, like, guy kind of, like, smirking to himself, is this incredible moment. He, like, gets out of the car. He puts his weird taxi beanie on. And he's like, yes. I think the fact that the the most emotion we had seen from him was only, you know, 60 seconds before this other moment was yeah. incredible, which is the pacing of this movie, which is like slow, 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 and then huge explosion, which I yeah. think that smirk leading into this like literal, like fuck word asthma attack. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, so, yes. So amazing. And... <laughs> Yes, and then the, the just, like, essentially like because I like to think his exhaustion is also from his like elation two minutes earlier yeah. from having done it and finally proving like I'm not a fuck up. I did this thing. I did it perfectly. It's exactly how I planned that like yeah. the come down and the frustration from that would have been way less informed if I hadn't got to like see him smile for the first mm. and only time in the film moment yeah. before. And it, it is, it's incredible. It's this incredible moment. And I also love the fact that he drives for a little bit in between oh walking off, like yeah. the, 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 the screaming and then the getting back in the car and then the deciding to like pull over in like a indiscriminate place. Like you kind of can't tell where he pulls over no. and then the walk off is like this. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible, incredible ending to a film. That Yeah, that filmmaking choice of this emotional ex- eruption, and, and that was such a good point, the, the setup to that being like this emotional whiplash is happening where he wins and then everything is taken from him in a two-minute span. But then the, the filmmaking decision to have just silence and follow him and he gets in the car and he drives and then he walks away. I, I, it's one of those moments where 
the same thing happened the first time I saw it and it happened again when I watched it. It's like my jaw drops a little bit and I, and I can't quite figure out the emotions that I'm feeling because of the filmmaking. And Andrew, I was wondering if you have like a weird nerdy filmy assessment of just the, that last he screams. And then why do we stay with him for the next? (laughs) And what is it that I'm feeling that is like so cathartic, but also so depressing. It's, Oh, it's crazy. It's, it's definitely like poetic in terms of just like, it feels like an extra line after the stanza (laughs) or something before you like turn the actual last page. It's also from like a, in a movie that Amazon purports as an action thriller, kind of. <laughs> he gets crashed into by like three or four cars. Yeah. So to have this silence where all you hear is his footsteps and he like looks at Rachel McAdams and Willem Dafoe, who are maybe now finally going to go get that tea now that they have nothing else to do. Yeah, it's just one of those moments from like a writing, acting, cinematography standpoint, just like feels so right. Yeah, it Um, is so right. And being in the back of the car and seeing it through, you know, seeing his eyes through the Mm -hmm. mirror is like, you know, not the first time that that like shot has been used, but it's probably like the best way I've ever seen that (laughs) shot be used. Just because in a lot of those other earlier car shots were like maybe in the passenger seat you know getting a profile profile. on him but there's something that i always just feel like where are you going phil (laughs) and i think it's like that weird tie to it being his last performance it really feels like this weird exuant as an actor too which insanely he speaks about Uh, there's certain things that have to happen for for me to believe it but, you know, not even, I'm not even thinking about you guys here, you know? I, for me to actually believe that I can speak at all, there's certain things that I have to work on. But there's something very similar about the two parts, actually, uh, that both men, uh, I think, change their lives at the end of the movie. Both movies, they, the man walks away at the end, which I found uh, a bit mysterious about myself. <laughs> yeah, those were the two movies I was making at the time, so maybe I should walk away. Those laughs are are uh, not hidden. Right. No. How do I edit the laughs out? You don't, because it's part of it, man. It's part of what make it more, yeah. makes it freaky. Yeah. I just think the fact that it happened so quickly and he's left completely alone again. They're like, we want everything but actually you. Like, we, you can stay and drive away. Like, you don't have to get in one of these vans. We don't care about you. Kind of. Yeah. That he's, like, in an actual moment, left completely alone again. When, like, the yeah. only thing... That's kind of his whole bit, right? He's this, like, lonely, you know, unbuttoned shirt Gunther. And <laughs> right. he... You know, that's just, like, all he is, ultimately. Mm-hmm. He had to give this this work, this identity that he has um, away and kind of like namelessly walk away in a twister outfit, you know? (laughs) Do you all think he is quitting? I didn't think about that until a minute ago. Do you think this is him literally walking away and and quitting this and being like, all right, I'm done. I don't know if I could say anything about what that moment is because Mm. of his like indecision to keep driving or not keep driving. Like I literally think he's like physically 
unaware of like what to do with his body. Like yeah. maybe, maybe he's quitting, but I, I just don't even think his brain has started working yet. It felt way more physical than anything else to me. Mm-hmm. Like he's just being led, but not actually in control of it. Yeah, for sure. Cause I think about moments, I mean, being shocked is like, you just don't know how to carry your body. You just go for a walk or like grieving or sadness. Like, you know, I think about moments in my life where before I, before I realize what I'm doing, I've already been like on a 40 minute walk and I'm like, okay, like, (laughs) all right. Like, seems like I need to check in like on myself, you know, like I, I just, that I think that moment moment just feels way, way more physical than any like decision making moment. Yeah. It's, uh, oh God, what is it, Andrew? It's, um, surprising, but inevitable. Mm -hmm. Like I actually feel this film nails the ending in terms of it's surprising, but inevitable based on everything coming before it. The only thing I remembered about the movie really was the ending. And I kept thinking during it, it's like, wait, how do we get there again? Like, that's what it's leading to, you know? And even um during the signing scene in the bank it's like wait does he like does he not change that one nonprofit or organization or whatever right yeah it felt like that wasn't gonna happen and that's why he gets mad but then i was like oh no this makes sense he's been at personality and managerial style odds with these other spies and agencies, the whole movie. So it's like, am I still waiting for Issa and Rachel McAdams to make out or not? (laughs) Do you know where you are? No, you don't. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. That's that is sponsored by one County film an independent film company telling stories with authentic characters and unique settings. You can rent our debut feature palace on Amazon right now. That's that is produced by me, Timothy Mark Davis and edited by Ryan Arnst. Our show music was composed and edited by Jessica Ray Huber and our graphic was designed by Drew Hannigan. You can connect with One County Film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One County Film. You can connect with me on Twitter at Timothy Mark D-A-V, Timothy Mark Dav, and Instagram at Timothy Mark Davis. Kinsley, Andrew, where can the people connect with you? I have an Instagram that is at kinsley.jk. I don't promote anything and do not have any projects, so a little slice of life. (laughs) And I, your Instagram is beautiful though. Thank you. I would definitely, definitely. I am still shocked that I do not have more Twitter followers. Um, also no projects, just some different flavor of a slice of life. Um, but definitely would love to see my audience grow on Twitter. And my Twitter handle is Kinsley wit W H I T at the end. Um, please retweet what you think is funniest that I've tweeted. Love that. Andrew. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Andrew Paul Davis, um, which I sometimes post about film projects at, but that's what One County Film is for, and also do some music stuff there. And my Twitter is unfortunately Andrew Davis Film, some <laughs> bastard named Andrew Paul Davis in the United Kingdom, has not answered any emails over the past six years about my offers to get the Andrew Paul Davis username on Twitter and you can look him up. He's private. He has like three or four followers. He has like a loser, big 
boy job <laughs> that makes more money than me, probably. And uh, wow. I just want him to relinquish at Andrew Paul Davis. That's all I want from him. I'm not like mad at him as a person, but. So where you know. can people follow you again? <laughs> so on Twitter, it's Andrew Davis film. And um, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want more followers? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened, but that just, ooh, that sent me. Oh, thank you again, everyone, for listening to That's That. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. It will help get the podcast out there to more PSH lovers. That's who this podcast is for. It's for me to do something I've always wanted to do, but also for other people who love Philip Seymour Hoffman to share in that. We'll see you next week with an in-depth look into Nobody's Fool, the 1994 film starring an older Paul Newman. It features Philip Seymour Hoffman in a supporting role as... Officer Raymer, and it was written and directed by Robert Benton, who wrote and directed Kramer vs. Kramer, which is an incredible movie starring Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman. So here's the logline for Nobody's Fool from IMDb. A stubborn man past his prime reflects on his life of strict independence and seeks more from himself. Mm. <laughs> Andrew, I mean, come on. I mean, uh, that's, come on, man. That's you. I'm going to start answering that way when people ask me how I'm doing. I'm going to be like, currently, I'm speaking a little bit more for myself. <laughs> a stubborn man reflecting on my life of strict independence, and I'm seeking a little more from myself. All right. So Nobody's Fool is currently streaming on Amazon Prime, and my guest will be filmmaker, film professor, and good friend Rick Negrone. So please watch and then join us for a deep dive. Kinsley, Andrew, before we leave, I need the guests to quote Adam Sandler and Philip Seymour Hoffman from Punch Drunk Love. Andrew, your line is, I would say that's that, Mattress Man. Kinsley, your line is, all right, that's that. Take it away. I would say that's that, Mattress Man. Damn it, I forgot what I was supposed to say. Do I say, all right, that's that? Yes. All right, that's that. That's that, everybody. Mm -hmm.